Chris and I have been moving through this series, this Heal Our Land. And this is 12 sermons on one sermon. 12 sermons on a sermon that Jesus delivered 2,000 years ago that if it takes you about 17 minutes to read, start to finish. And one would ask the question, why would you spend that much time wrestling with a sermon series like this? Why would you spend that much time in one part of Scripture? And if you've been going along with this, you understand why, because Jesus continually to lays out and presents some stuff that is un- unbelievably relevant to our world today, unbelievably relevant for the season that we're in. In fact, if you could have pulled this sermon right out of the Bible, you could have stamped 2020 on it, and nobody would have thought it was written a year before. They would have thought it was written right in the middle of what we were experiencing, both around the world and maybe even perhaps more with an edge to it, particularly in our country, in our nation, in our culture here. Something's going to happen on Tuesday, right? There's an election. Maybe you've heard of it. It's been in a few of the papers. We're going to have an election on Tuesday, and then perhaps six weeks from now we'll know the outcome. We're looking forward to that. But we're very anxious, aren't we? And there's lots of emotion, there's lots of rhetoric, and there's lots of fever built into it. And so what the Heal Our Land series has been doing, it's been looking at the words of Jesus. And Jesus has the audacity to look at a ragtag group of peasant farmers that were the Jewish people gathered on this hillside when he first delivered this message. It was not the powerful people. It was not the people in charge. It wasn't necessarily the wealthiest people. It was just a ragtag bunch, and he's declaring a revolution is coming. But he does this incredible thing where he says, but you're going to be the revolution. He says, you're going to be the salt and the light of the world. And it's not about some military overthrow. It's not about getting the right people in office. He says, by the way that you live your life, it will change the world. The way you live your life will heal the land. Because anybody on that hillside today, they wanted their land healed. Because they were not in charge of themselves. They were an occupied country. So their administration definitely wasn't in power. They were not controlling their own shots. And yet they wanted something different. And Jesus presents them something different. But as they listen to the sermon, they realize he's talking about a different way of healing the land. And he's going to do it through them. Chris and I have both said all throughout what happens in your house, what happens in the Lord's house, is more important than what happens in the White House. And so... We're going to jump into that next part, and we've tackled some pretty difficult things so far. Uh, Jesus has already addressed struggles with sexuality, struggles with anger, struggles with the way that we talk to one another, the way that we treat those that we disagree with, the way we treat our, our enemies, and every one of them has been huge. And then we get to this today, and it's almost like, where did that come from, Jesus? It almost seems like it's a, it's a sort of a one-off, just thrown in there. 
So today we're going to talk about what I'm going to call our selfie righteousness. So let's start out this way. We've been doing some fun with some movie quotes. Help finish the quote for me. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of all? Now I know there's some, there's some diehards out there that says, no, you just misquoted it. Because the actual quote is magic mirror on the wall. Grace abounds. Okay, go with me. Mirror, mirror on the wall, or magic mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of the all? Those are the words spoken by the evil queen in the movie Sleeping Beauty. Snow White. Golly. <laughs> by some movie that Disney did. Here's what I know already, is that worshiping together with Avenue G... Western Hills is far more vocal now, all of a sudden. And you don't mind correcting me from the audience. Thank you. The evil queen has a vanity problem, doesn't she? And she's got this desire to be the fairest in the land, to be the most spectacular in the land. And so she does a daily check-in. She, she does a regular, do I still hold my status? Do I still hold the same envious position among all the people that are looking at me? Am I still being seen by others? Now, I know this is a lesson because none of us in here struggle with our image, do we? None of us fall into that temptation, do we? See, we're going to talk about something today where Jesus drops in some teaching that at first it doesn't even sound like it should be on the same shelf along with the ones that we've already covered but Jesus knows us. And he knows how we're wired. In fact, let me, just, let me just do it this way. Let me drop in with the very first verse in Matthew chapter 6 says this. He says, and remember, this comes after he's already talked about our anger and our bitterness towards one another and getting along with our enemies and our sexual brokenness. He drops in. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. It, it really seems like a left turn, doesn't it? It, it seems like it's, it's out, of, um, out of message. What are you doing there, Jesus? Here's what Jesus knew that we would struggle with. Our image and our perception, and our value that we place on how other people perceive us. I'm calling it selfie righteousness because unless you've been under a rock, you're aware of we've got a whole new move now, right? We can take our phones that have cameras on them, and we can flip the camera around. Do you realize we're the first generation in the history of the world that created cameras to turn around on us? Before that, a camera, uh, taking a photo of, of your photo was always a two-person process. If you were going to be in the photo, it took somebody else to take it. But now we've created a deal where you can hold your, your phone up, flip the screen around, take your picture, and then you post it out on social media for all to see. Now, I, I'm not bagging on you if, you're, if that's something you've done. I've taken selfies before. But what I am trying to point out, the fact is that we have more tools than ever before to manage our image, don't we? Because after you've taken your, your very carefully composed selfie, very few people roll out of bed and take their selfies. Have you noticed that? 
Nobody reaches over and grabs their phone. Now, we grab our phone early in the morning, but nobody reaches over and grabs their phone, still laying in bed going, I'm going to take this, and it's got the hair matted everywhere and the morning breath and everything else. No, we take the, the, the really well-composed one, and then, if you're really savvy, you apply what? Filters. You start finding, because you want it dressed up as nice as possible. And what this allows us to do and what social media allows us to do is allows us to manage our image like never before. And many of us, myself included, we're addicted to image management, aren't we? I want to present myself in a certain way so that you think the best about me. I want to come across in a certain way where I can see in your eye the approval. Where I know that if I, we were to play the comparison game, I feel like I'm coming out just a little bit on, on top. That's what Jesus is speaking into. When he says, be careful on how you present your own righteousness. Now, that seems strange because you're thinking, okay, if God is a righteous God and he wants us to be righteous, he wants us to live it out in front of everybody else, right? But what he's going to call us to is a very, very insidious way of living our righteousness that invites us to come and I live out my righteousness for your approval. I live it out for your applause. And he knows that we're going to be addicted to this if we're not careful. And so he's looking at this group and he's telling this group and the first thing he says is be careful how you live out your righteousness. And to us, we're thinking, well, be careful how you live out anything but understand that in that culture, with that particular group of people, righteousness was status. Righteousness bought you points with the crowd. Righteousness brought you the envy of your friends. They had a belief that, in fact, if you were wealthy, it's because you were righteous. And so putting on a certain air of righteousness that can be seen by others was in many ways talking about how well off you were. And so there, he's coming at this presentation with a group of people that it may seem a little distance to us, but if you were right, righteous or you acted righteous or you behaved in a righteous way, you got the likes. You got the thumbs up thing. And so he's going to go into three very particular ways of living this out. He's got three applications. And so we're going to go through them very quickly, but I want you to follow along. If you've got a Bible open, I want you to have something to write with, be ready to go, because I want to highlight a few things for you that I think are going to be critical to this understanding of what Jesus is doing here. So let's go back to our very first verse once again. I want you to pay attention. This is Matthew 6.1. I want you to pay attention. If you do this is, if you do live your righteousness out to be seen by others, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, I want you to underline that. We're going to come back to it. That's the teaser, but I want you to pay attention every time Jesus uses the word reward in this text. So the first thing he goes to is giving. He's going to talk about giving, prayer, and then fasting. So here's what he says about giving. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. There's the second word I want you to pay attention to. I want you to underline, circle, highlight, whatever, every time we come to the word hypocrites. Don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. 
Truly, I tell you, when they have received their, here's our word, reward, they have received their reward in full. But when you give, give to the needy. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, he starts out with basically hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. It's meant to catch your attention. Uh, sometimes you may have heard this verse interpreted that they used to have a practice where as you gave in the temple, people would announce it with trumpets. There's no real record that that was actually the way that the contributions were given in the temple. What he's saying is, though, there's a way to give, to posture yourself, where you give not because you've spotted a need and you're moving toward it, or you feel a call of God leading you that way, but I've spotted need, and I think I can buy myself some approval. I think I'm going to buy myself some I impressed you today moments. And there's that image management. There's that addiction to what I want so much from you, is that approval and that desire. This is a struggle in churches, isn't it? So I, at another church that I, that I served years ago, there was a story that was legendary there. Now, so I was not in this meeting. I wasn't a part of this meeting. It happened, but you know how church stories can live on. And the, the, church, the story is this, is that they were at a business meeting back when you had the men's business meeting. And there was something being debated, and it got heated, and we're, the leadership was trying to make a decision of which way to go. And one guy spoke up, and apparently this guy let it always be known how much he gave in church. And so it didn't seem to be going his way this particular night, and so he's going to play his card one more time. And so he says, hey, gentlemen, or men, you know how much I give here. I, we need to be doing this. And he's holding the church hostage that way. There was another guy that was relatively new to the church, but had heard this little speech before. In the meeting, he stands up and says, Brother, how much do you give? Because I would like to buy you out. pulling that away from him. And there's the desire to let our influence be known in how we give. And God says, give to the need, not to your need to be known. And he's inviting us in to that kind of life. I'm going to jump to the very end. Let's jump to the fasting verses. In verse 16. When you fast, okay, and fast, once again, is the going without, doing without something so you can focus on something else. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the primary um, practice of fasting was to go without food for a while. And that's a healthy choice today, and that has definite meaning today. Imagine going without food in a culture where you are praying for your daily bread, as we're going to see in just a minute. That you're abstaining from something to give your attention to something else. And so when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites. 
There's our hypocrite word again. Do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received there, and Jesus repeats it again, reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And he repeats it again and again. The invitation is, he's invited us into actually do this practice of fasting. He's encouraging the practice of fasting. But once again, he says, you do it in such a way where only your Heavenly Father knows that you're doing it. And it was far more common in that culture to let your grief be known out loud, to let your struggle be known out loud, let your suffering be known out loud, and you would put ash and oil or you would mess your face up in such a way, note your grief, grieving. But what was happening is people were now doing this to gain, once again, attention and to be seen as righteous. And here's that image management. It's like putting on a filter. Let me show you what I want you to see. And I want you to see how impressive my spirituality is. Says, don't do it that way. And what I'm going to suggest is right in the middle, between the giving and the fasting, there's the hinge to it all. And he invites us into a certain kind of prayer life. And so if you would, once again, look at the prayer. This is the middle verses here. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Okay, if you notice, he does it three times, hypocrites. Hypocrite was the word for the actors of the day. The play actors. And so what Jesus is very clearly saying, is looking at this crowd, he's saying, do not play act with the things of God. This is not a game that you somehow come out on top of. Do not take this lightly. So hypocrite now has a very negative thing, and it should in our world, but he's talking about don't pretend at this. And he says, when you're pursuing the approval of the others, you're pretending. He says, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received, and once again, their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, he will Rewards you. Repeats the promise again. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask. This then is how you should pray. And he's about to give them a model of a prayer. Now for us, we're very familiar with this prayer, many of us. You've heard it quoted, you've seen it on a greeting card, or you've seen it in a frame on somebody's wall. We're very familiar with this prayer. What you need to understand is the day that Jesus first gave the prayer, everybody leaned in. How should we pray? And when he gave them this, he was giving them revolutionary information. This was a game changer for them. It's a little lost on us because we're so familiar with it. But on that day, with their expectations, what they thought the way the world worked, the way that God interacted with them, it changed the status quo. Here's what he does. Our Father, and right there, 
Most of us go, yes. We say, dear God. Jesus just uses a very emotional word right there. And most people on the hillside that day would have been like, that's really intimate. That's a little close for comfort. That brings God really near to me to call him my father. And all that emotion and all that energy and all that thought that goes into what it means to be a father, God's bringing, I mean, Jesus is bringing him very close. And he says, our father in heaven, hallowed or, or holy, special, special, worshiped is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Let's talk about kingdom for a second. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And that's what he's talking about through this whole sermon. And Chris and I have been talking about through this whole series. Your kingdom of God. And remember, a kingdom is anywhere that your rule and authority is pronounced, is evident. And so what Jesus is doing, he's inviting this group to say, when you talk to your father, and he's your heavenly father, it doesn't take some kind of incantation. You don't have to summon him by some magical ritual from afar. You don't have to go through convulsions to do it. You simply say, Father, your kingdom. And he's very specific about this for a reason. Because you're inviting in God's rule, your kingdom, to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom is going to be the one that rules. And what we're doing is we're not praying a prayer that says, God, rescue me someday from this lost world and take me off to heaven. We're saying, God, you bring heaven here. And may be a part of what we go on here. And the point is, we're the ones to help live that kingdom out. It goes on. Give us today our daily bread. And once again, this means so much more when you live in a society, live in a culture, live in a reality where you are praying for your bread that day. I go through very few days in my life where I'm just not sure if I'm going to eat on that day or not. Most people in Jesus' audience, that was not true. And, but I want you to look. Nowhere in the prayer is it, give me my bread. It's always a give us our bread. Every pronoun in the prayer is communal when it talks about coming from us. Our Father, give us our daily bread. And there's something inviting about this is that when you're talking to your Heavenly Father, you have an opportunity to not simply be praying for you, but be praying for all of His creation. And remember what Chris talked about last week. That means you're also praying for the parts of the creation and those that are the Creator that you don't like. The ones that vote differently from you and the ones that do not maintain the homeowners association rules the way you want them maintained. And those people that use 12 items in the 10 item line. You know who you are. I'm saying you pray not just for your own, but you're praying for God's blessing. God's kingdom to reign across this world, across this land, and across our nation.
Next. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people, and this Jesus, he kind of steps out of the prayer for a second. For if you give other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, I'm going to take just a side note real quick because that sounds really harsh. Here's what I believe he's doing. I don't think this is describing God says, I don't think God's saying or Jesus is saying what God does is, I wait until you forgive somebody, then I step in and forgive. Because that would totally disregard the cross. While we, while we were still sinners, Jesus laid down his life. What I think he's doing, and I think this is the point that is the whole prayer and the whole portion of this, sermon, this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, is that you've got to tune yourself in, and as you forgive others, that's going to make it possible for you to spot forgiveness in your own life. That's going to tune it in for your own need for forgiveness in your life. Because if I'm living an image-based, selfie righteousness, then it's real easy for me to look in your window and say, you've got some problems. But it's really difficult to look in my own mirror and see the problems. And he's saying, as you forgive others, your own awareness in your, of your own need for forgiveness will rise to the top, and you'll stop trying to play the game anymore. So here's three takeaways that I want for us. Takeaway number one, what you are in private is what you really are. Congratulations. You can keep up an image. Jesus says that you can. But what he says is, and you've already gotten your reward. It's almost a promise. You can play this game. But understand, you've gotten your reward at that part. What he really is worried about, not your image, but your character. He's worried about the part on the inside. And what you are in private is what you really are. When no one is watching except the Father that's unseen and sees what's done that no one else sees. And it's very possible... For me to have a great image on the outside and to be rotting on the inside. Several years ago, and Eric and I, early in our relationship, we'd gone to my mom's house. My mom, if you knew her, she was like an American picker on steroids. That I mean, there was no garage sale that she ever passed by. Um, in fact, one time she was taking my dad to what was going to be kind of an emergency hospital visit and Pastor Grotz sale and said, give me five minutes. <laughs> and part of what she picked up at one of these garage sales was lots of antique things, and so she had actually antique egg cups. Now, I didn't know that was a thing, but she had antique egg cups. And to lay the dis- display out there, to have them on display, she put a plastic egg in each one of them, and then Eric and I were over visiting the house, and Eric comments, oh, this is a neat egg set. She reaches over and touches one of the plastic eggs ever so gently and it explodes. It wasn't a plastic egg. We were like sometime in the summer and like at Easter time, mama took a hard-boiled egg and set it in the cup and then never changed the decoration. 
And so it not, not cracked open, it exploded everywhere. And of course then sulfur smelled, filled the house just from the slightest touch. On the outside, it looked great. On the inside, it was rotten and it stunk. What's inside of you will be revealed when the slightest pressure and stress gets applied. So you may keep the image up for a long time, but understand it will not weather the storm. This is why at the end of the sermon Jesus says, build your house on the rock that Chris talked about. What you are in private is what you really are. Takeaway number two. Will you seek the applause of the kingdom in front of you or the kingdom above you? See, we can pursue the image, and and Jesus says, you will have your reward. You can get the applause of men. We can live our lives in such a way where I can impress you, at least for a short time. But what I'm doing is I'm trading out the applause of heaven, the kingdom above me, for the kingdom in front of me. I'm not praying the prayer of, Lord, let your kingdom come to earth and let's live that up. I'm lifting up my own kingdom. So the prayer is asking us to pray a very specific kind of way. When, to break ourselves free from the self-righteousness, we are praying the prayer every single time that says, Thy kingdom before my kingdom. Thy glory before my glory. And let me let you in on a little secret. This is what Jesus is telling us. Your kingdom is way too small of a thing to live for. It's just not worth it. But his kingdom, it is. Chris and I, I'll confess for him, I know I struggle with this, this is our temptation. We, we are so tempted so often to preach in a certain way to seem impressive. And so I've got to keep coming back to a prayer every single Sunday that says, God, it's your glory, not mine. It's your kingdom, not my kingdom that we're building here. You do with this what you will. Because the image management is so tempting, isn't it? And it's so insidious. So will you live for the applause of the kingdom above you? Or will you live for the one in front of you? Because the one in front of you, it's a fickle kingdom. And what it appreciates and what it applauds today will not be what it appreciates and applauds tomorrow. But there is one more thing. And this is the reward part. And I promise we're going to come to this. Here's number three. You've got to turn down the admiration of the world to hear the affirmation of your Heavenly Father. Turn down the admiration of the world to hear the affirmation of your Heavenly Father. Reminded of the story that's told of the Danish king in the early thousands, King Canute. And this is right prior to the Norman conquest of England. But um, of England and, and the Danish countries there. King Canute was a wise, gracious king, and many stories were told about him. But one of the ones I found the most compelling is that in a moment when he was hearing too much praise, too much admiration, too much, too much applause 
from his court because he's the monarch, he's the king. He does something to demonstrate. He takes his throne and he goes out by the the seashore. And he plants his throne in the sand and he sits in the throne and he commands the waves to not touch him. And the tide's rolling in. And you can imagine what happened. The tide just kept coming in. And he would shout louder and command the waves more to not touch him. And finally, his throne that he's sitting on is up to his waist now, covered in water. And the point he is making to all those that are around him is that he does not control the sea. His kingdom is on the earth, but there's a king that's above him of whose admiration he should seek. And so it's said that he took his crown off that day, he hung it on a crucifix, and never wore it again. Acknowledging that his kingdom was going to be subject to a higher kingdom. And we've got to be able to turn down the volume of the admiration of the world if we're going to hear the affirmation of our Heavenly Father because there's the reward that God promises. It is not the reward of I'm going to make it into heaven. That is legalistic and goes against everything that Jesus did on the cross. What he's saying is you can hear the applause of those around you or if you're willing to listen for it, you will hear the affirmation of the one that created you. The one that looks at you and knows you better than you know yourself. All the flaws included that you do not have to hide and be ashamed of, embarrassed of, and think I'm going to pull one over on God. He sees it all and yet still reaches to you and says, I love you this much that he's willing to lay down his life for you. God loves you enough that he would rather die than live without you. That's why I love the story that Max Lucado wrote called You Are Special. And if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to look this book up. It's a children's book, but it's profound truth, and it tells the story of Punchinello. And Punchinello is basically a wooden puppet, think Pinocchio. And Punchinello lives among other wooden puppets, and together they're known as the Weemix. And the Weemix have a very interesting habit. They walk around and they give gold stars to each other every time they're impressed by somebody else. But if they're disappointed in somebody else, they give a gray dot. And so the story goes that the Weemix spend all day long exchanging gold stars and gray dots. If the Weemix does something that's impressive, if he can jump higher than somebody else, or he can run faster than somebody else, or he can sing better than somebody else, or he's prettier than somebody else, people hand him gold stars. But if they do something silly, if they do something embarrassing, if they trip and they fall, they run over and they put gold dots, they stick um, gray dots on them. Well, Punchinello is not an impressive Weemick. So he's got gray dots all over him. In fact, he's got so many gray dots that people come up and give him gray dots just for having gray dots. You ever felt like that? And one day, Punchinello is invited to go up the hill where the wood craftsman, the maker, the creator is. His name's Eli. And he goes up, and he, as he approaches the workshop of Eli, Eli looks up and says, says, Punchinello. And he thought, you know my name? He goes, of course I did. I made you. 
then Punchinello becomes very aware of all the gray dots that he has, and he tries to hide them. And Eli says, why do you have all these gray dots? And he says, I must not be a very good Wemick. He goes, oh, you need to stop listening to everybody else. And here's how that story concludes. Eli says, these stickers, these stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about the stickers. Punchinello replies, I'm not sure I understand. You will, but it'll take some time. You've got a lot of marks. For now, just come see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli. Remember, Eli said as the Weemick walked out the door. You're special because I made you, and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. The Heavenly Father, the one that invites you to call Him Father, the one that created you and knows you better than you know yourself, invites you into a relationship, and it has nothing to do with impressing the person next to you. But it has everything to do with how special you are and how much He loves you. Let me pray for us. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Father, may your kingdom be done here as it is in heaven. And may we live by kingdom standards where we seek our approval and our applause and our affirmation only from you, Father. Father, I ask that you would deliver us from our addiction to image management and that we would hear your voice loud and clear and daily. And that, Father, out of that we would live our lives, not comparing to one another, but with an unending source of love for those around us. Father, we ask this in the one, in the name of the one that laid down his life for us because we were worth that much. It's in his name we pray. Amen.